Welcome to Mindful Social, the show that intersects mindfulness and emotional intelligence with the hectic online world we live in today. Hey everybody, welcome to Mindful Social. My guest this week is Gina Beagle. She's a psychotherapist, a speaker, an author, a researcher. She focuses on mindfulness for adolescents and she's the founder of Stress Teens. She released her book in January, Taken the Good, and just released a really cool card deck for teams, teens, I'm going to redo that part, and just released a really cool card deck for teens with essential, essential skills to help teens be more mindful, reduce stress, and live their best lives. Like, don't we all want to do that? You may have heard the interview with Dr. Rick Hansen on the show recently, and as soon as I saw the title of Gina's book, I couldn't wait to get it. I could easily see how this is going to be really useful to teens, but it's certainly not limited to teens. It's a wonderful book full of so much approachable and really beautifully illustrated content that you really need to pick up with the book. So welcome. Gina, I'm so glad to finally get you on the show and, and we get to chat. I'm so grateful to be here. Thanks for having me and for speaking so highly of my work. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I really do. And, and now in these particular times, it's so important. Uh, you know, teens are used to going to school and being social. And at least in California, they're not. So, you know, why don't we just dive right into that? How can we be helping our teens recognize stress in the first place? It's hard to not like talk about the elephant in the room, which is that we're dealing with a large pandemic right now. And I, I was, I'm teaching right now, actually a two week teen group. And we had our first group right before this, um, this podcast today. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting as one of the handouts in my take in the good book or one of the pages is on basic needs. And it's talking about, you know, a lot of times people forget their basic needs until they're being, you don't have that basic need being met such as, mm -hmm. you know, clean water or shelter or food, or in this case, you know, toilet paper or hand sanitizer or gloves. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I was struck with, I started with a gratitude practice today and many of them were mentioning having their basic needs being met for them and were mentioning different ones that are on my list. And I, I found that really interesting because most times teens don't talk about basic needs at all. Mm -hmm. Some of them just kind of, we all kind of can take them for granted and forget that we have those privileges. And it's not to feel bad for the privileges we have, but when you're, when you're feeling stressed or when you're feeling overwhelmed and kind of meet, meeting yourself where you're at, meaning if you're, if things are really difficult, it's really focusing on getting those basic needs. And, you know, even just, you know, taking a shower or, you know, sometimes just getting out of bed can be really hard for someone. And so, mm. you know, there's, there's a level of kind of a continuum of self-care in a way, which is meeting someone where you're at. So if you're not really functioning very well, meaning you're kind of depressed or anxious or dealing with a lot, having a hard time kind of just doing the day in day out, it's like doing those basic things, you know, eating, sleeping, taking a shower, get, getting out, getting some air. And then, you know, there's on the other end, there's those times where we are, you know, things are going relatively well, relatively smooth, like, you know, with, within a range of balance, right? I don't think we're ever fully balanced, but you know, when things are kind of going good and then that's the time in our life where we're, you know, 
taking care of engaging in extra self-care or, you know, really doing those kind of bonus things to help us kind of resource ourselves, fill in the good, fill us up and take in the good. And so Mm -hmm. it's, and it's just interesting right now because I think that there's such a focus on those basic needs and not just having shelter or clothes, but our health is such a big one that's being impinged upon us. Yeah. And it's, it's been interesting. We have a 20 year old son and it's been interesting to see how there's such a difference um, with how they approach things. Um, and with teens, especially, you know, we also have, family that have younger kids. And I don't know that they recognize that they are stressed. They experience it, but I don't think they have a label for it. And it's hard to fix it if you don't know what it is. I, yeah, you had asked me that and I didn't quite answer that part of the question, which was, you know, how do you know someone's stressed or Mm -hmm. what are our red flags that we're stressed? And I think that because our and generally in the U.S. Um, and the United States, our, our feeling vocabulary is quite limited. And, our, and what, hap- what happens with that is that we, be kind, we become kind of shut off to other feelings that, come, that can show us that we're stressed or having a lot of feelings, such as like, you know, our body gives off as physical cues. You know, just like, you know, our phone lets us know when it needs to be charged. Our car gives us an indicator light when we're on empty to fill it. Um, we don't really necessarily have a, we don't have a bar on us that shows us when we're on empty, you know, we need recharging. And so it's tuning into the physical cues and signs that our body is depleted, um, or needs refueling and charging. And, or if we emote, how do we deal with stress? Like, how do we even know we're stressed? Like sometimes someone will experience it as a thought. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I have, I'm worried or I'm anxious or have, I'm thinking about my to-do list or I'm stuck on that hamster wheel. I can't get off of it. Um, another way someone might be stressed is their feelings. They might have anger or resentment or frustration or anxiety, or they might be cry, cry, you know, but then again, there's also these physical symptoms that people can have like stomach aches or headaches or a hard time breathing, or, you know, their hands are clammy or muscle tightness. And it, how do each of how does each person individually experience stress? Although stress is universal, and that we all, if I said I'm stressed, you kind of have some understanding for what I mean. But how I specifically um, experience it is different. And sometimes talking about what what you're stressed about or how do you experience stress creates stress. And so you know, it's like. But the thing what I always tell people is that when you talk about it or when you put it on paper you're not holding it in anymore. And one of the, the ways I do this is I have all people, not just teens, do their stress waves and draw what their waves look like right now. Like the waves being their stressors in their life, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's, you know, very chill, calm and still, or whether it's a full blown tsunami. And it's kind of a way to visually see, Hey, this is, these are the things that are going on for me. One also, when you put them on paper, you're not having to hold on to them anymore. You can actually mm-hmm. see them. And what's interesting is that, like waves, um, stressors change, they shift, and there's this level of impermanence, mm-hmm. and that you're not just stuck in this fixed moment. And so if you do this kind of riding the waves and looking at your stress waves, periodically, you'll see, you know, what's resolved, what is still a problem, what are things that you don't even know why you wrote them down, because they weren't, you don't, they weren't really that big of a deal to begin with. And it's just interesting to, to see, I, and I just did this this morning with some teens, and and it, it's a way to then start dealing with them because 
what I encourage is what are the ones that are more short term or cute or, or easily changeable and mm -hmm. have someone work on one or two of those first, because then you still, you feel a sense of power agency and control and then, you know, work to dealing with the more chronic or long term ones by kind of breaking them down and with some actual steps. And then there are those, those stressors that we can't do anything about. Like the fact that cult, like we're in a worldwide pandemic. Those are, that's something we can't control. And that also can create a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. But what can you do to control the uncon uncontrollable? You know, like what part in this can make, take some action, you know, mm -hmm. to stay safe and healthy and so some of that is having a, a sense of equanimity that, okay, this is going on. I can't fix it. I can't change it. So stop struggling. It's what I always say is acknowledge the worry, acknowledge the pain, the stress, the struggle. It's knowing though that worrying isn't going to change the outcome. That helps a lot with teens. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, you're worrying about this. Will worrying change whether it happens or not? Or will worrying about it change whether it's going to end today or tomorrow or a month from now? Right. Unfortunately not, as much as we'd like to. But what, what part can we change? Well, we can look at an action plan for ourselves. We can create like actual literal steps to working on a problem versus just kind of being stuck in it mm -hmm. and feeling powerless in it. Um, and there are certain things we can't change and control. And knowing what that feels like and being kind of kind of up toward it be toward it instead of fighting against it it's like the acceptance of yes this is difficult this lean into it instead of pushing away from it right yeah when we try to push things away it rarely makes us feel better does it no it usually makes things worse yeah <laughs> what i call what i call blocking um mm -hmm. i i um shinson young came up with these theorems of human happiness and I took one of his theorems and I created stress equals pain times blocking and that pain is inevitable in life, but our stress is optional. What we do with our pain is really a lot in our control mm -hmm. and has a lot to do with how we block the experience of that pain. And not to mention that pain and stress are there for a reason. They're there for information. Usually they get worse when you don't notice them or ignore them, mm -hmm. or they get worse when you hold on and cling to them. So at both ends of that, the, the pain or tends to get worse. Yeah, the more attention. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, it's interesting too. I, I looked at the cards that you just created um, and you walk people through like, okay, this is how you recognize stress. And, you know, talk a little bit about what the process is in the deck to really kind of, move people through learning rather than with some card decks, it's a, um, asynchronous learning. Yeah. I, what I like to do is, okay, let's figure out how we experience stress, what our stressors are in our life. Now we've identified the stress. Let's talk about the solution. Let's get into some action. And one action is mindfulness and mindful practice. But there's also, my program that I teach is mindfulness-based. It's not just mindfulness. There's other things in that. And so, you know, it's looking at self-care and positive coping skills and gratitude and compassion 
and all of those things are part and parcel of go along with mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, Rick Hansen is definitely a big supporter of mine and a big uh, influencer of mine. And someone I, I mean, my book, Taking the Good, is adapted from his work um, mm -hmm. with his blessing. And the idea is, is that once you're mindful, you can be aware of the negative just as easy, easily, if not more than the positive. And so, especially with teens who are, can kind of see the glass half empty or might be a bit judgmental here and there, mm -hmm. um, it's very important to teach someone to be mindful and attend to the positive and attend to ways to take in the good because they could just so easily also just become more mindful of you know, I should have done this. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. It's getting into that language that they can also become very mindful of and almost stuck on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of like what, what Rick says about um, being Velcro to the, to the negative and Teflon to the positive. Yeah. And I believe that with mindfulness and these related kind of positive neuroplasticity skills of taking in the good, we shift that. We shift mm -hmm. away from that negative, that negative selection bias, and we begin to tilt toward the positive and ways in which when you attend to the good and you not only get, do you get a benefit in that moment, you also get a resource for later. So it's not like you're on empty. Your, your phone is staying somewhat charged. Your car has some gas in it. And then we also have some, you know, we have something to turn to because we're much, a, much better at tolerating things that are hard when you're not on empty. For sure. Yeah. 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 And when we're completely depleted of happiness, it's almost impossible for us to dig out of that hole. I call it um, just kind of negativity cycles. You know, we get into negativity bias. We start only seeing the negative and then we start looping that until it kind of becomes comfortable to be sarcastic and pessimistic and down on everything. And I think one of the tools that mindfulness brings to that is it allows us to be mindful of the fact that we're doing that because we often don't notice, oh, wow, I've been negative all day, maybe longer. And, you know, I, I think for me, taking the good is one of those things that has really changed that for me as I can say, okay, I recognize I'm in the loop. I know the loop. Okay, now if I want to get out of the loop, I'm going to have to look out the window or I'm going to pet the cat or I'm going to get up and go for a walk, whatever it takes to break that cycle. Or I think we just kind of reach a set point. If that Absolutely. makes sense. Absolutely. Well, also knowing what our set point is, though, like what is our, what is kind of like that optimal kind of, what, what would you like to have your thermometer set at, to, that barometer in yourself where you're not, you know, boiling hot and you're not cold, like boiling hot, being angry, and you're not cold, like depressed or anxious, but like, what's that place where, you know, you're kind of at your like average, you're, you're in your middle ground or your balance point. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's also a good barometer to have for ourselves. It's like checking in like, Hey, you know, am I off today? Am I doing good today? What is going on? I think there's this belief that when you're mindful, that that means you're happy or that your experiences are going to be pleasant and positive and wonderful. And, and the thing is, is that when you're mindful, yes, that can happen, but you're also going to be mindful of when life is showing up and when things are hard and when you're cranky and irritable and tired and frustrated. And the thing is, is that mindfulness provides us with information, a lot of information. And it, 
it allows us to attend to the moment and then we decide whether we want to stay attending to it or not we mm -hmm. want to move, do we want to move on to something else or do we want to stick with what we're what we're attending to and i think that's really useful for people when we get stuck in one you know for example like stuck on what someone says someone posts on social stuck on something on a po on the feed you know mm -hmm. or your likes or dislikes when people can get really hung up on those things yeah and it's like okay what how do we recalibrate how do we step off you know that train of thought how do we back away and watch the thoughts without being our thoughts and mm -hmm. you know asking ourselves the questions are these thoughts true real and factual because a lot of times we believe things that aren't true real Most of the time factual. It just because we think them doesn't mean they're fact. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, something worth sharing is that it's also worthwhile to sit with that negativity. You know, if, if something's upsetting you and you're just feeling really crappy, then, okay, instead of pushing it away, instead of running away from it, just sitting with it and allowing it to be. Um, you know, I really love your idea of, the waves because we all realize when we stop to think about it that even pain is mostly cyclical and we get stuck on the oh this hurts right now and then when we doesn't hurt we don't go oh it doesn't hurt right now <laughs> we don't remember that part or just the part that it's there for pain is there for a reason it's there for information yeah and it's actually there as a protection also stress is there for a protection too. It's mm. to protect us from poten potentially vulnerable situations. Is that elicited, that response elicited maybe when we don't need it? Absolutely. But it, it's important to notice when our, our body's giving us information. And I find that a lot of people are stuck in the head area and not in the body area. And I find that our body actually gives us pretty accurate information most of the time compared to our mind, which might lead us down that rabbit hole or down a path that isn't serving. And so I, I really try to encourage people to really notice their body, notice what cues and signs are letting them know that they're not at that balance point anymore. Mm -hmm. Let's expand on that a little bit. What kind of signs can people be looking at about how they're embodying a particular emotion or, um, you know, just, just how their body's responding to things? I find that a lot of times people will have like GI gastrointestinal issues like stomach aches or um, pain in their like heartburn area or difficulties with breathing like shallow breath or restricted breathing. A lot of times headaches, you know, mm -hmm. like someone with recurrent headaches or they'll notice, you know, even just tuning into your face and notice if your glaw, your, your glaw, I was trying to say your jaw, if your jaw, your glaw is tense, <laughs> you want to unleash the glaw. Mm -hmm. Yes. If your jaw is tense, release it, you know, noticing just, I always find it interesting. People will often be really tense or tight or hold a position or a facial, facial expression and not realize they're tense or tight. Yeah. And it's like when you actually just tune in for a second or two, you're like, oh, you know, and, and I'm not saying every headache is related to a symptom of stress. I mean, people have migraines that aren't necessarily stress related, but figuring out the way you experience and express your stress physically mm -hmm. or is just really useful. I think they're so for so long, people can just kind of go in their life doing, and because of so many distractions that we have, 
at our fingertips, like by music or the internet or whatever it might be, social media, we can keep really busy and not be with ourselves because we actually are doing that as a distraction for something that feels uncomfortable to us yeah. or that's a pain for us. And so there's healthy distraction and, but there's also, am I distracting so much because I just don't want to deal with real life and with what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the balance. I think knowing the difference between a, you know, sometimes just life sucks and you just need a break and you do need a distraction. But then it's like, if I'm just kind of avoiding, I think, and that's the difference. It's like, am I avoiding? Am I pushing away? Am I denying what is? And, and that's where it becomes a little bit more tricky to decipher the distraction and the need for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and checking in with your body. I love, I love the jaw part that because I that's one of the places I carry stress in my neck and in my jaw and I'll just realize wow <laughs> feeling a little tight right now and try to just take a few breaths which is always my answer yes any of my clients they're all like yes all you talk about is breath well there's a really good reason for that because often we find that we're holding our breath when we're stressed and when we realize how our body feels when it responds to stress we can head it off before our mind goes running with it. I, I find that there are a lot of younger people and a lot of adults that have a really hard time with breath because maybe they have an anxiety disorder and panic attacks or mm-hmm. difficulties with breathing or, or the fact that when you notice breath, your breath, it often changes. People don't realize that's normal. to ch- Your breath is going to change when you notice it. It doesn't yeah. mean you weren't breathing before and it doesn't mean you're not going to breathe after. Um, but I'll give you an example for myself. I, when I first started practice, I'm in my forties now. And when I first started practicing, I was very early twenties, in my early twenties. And they would tell me to focus on my breath. Well, the only time I had ever been asked to focus on my breath was as a doctor when they put a stethoscope on my back and I took (laughs) really deep breaths. So in mindful practice, they would say, do that. And so I would just do that. And then all of a sudden I would like start getting lightheaded and I would start feeling like I was going to faint because I was breathing like these really crazy breaths. <laughs> and that helped me to notice what that might be like for someone who's new to noticing their breath. And so it's, it, aside from befriending the breath and notice that when you know, when you first notice it, it will shift and change and that will pass. And then mm-hmm. eventually you will start slowly, little by slow, tuning into the cadence of your breath and breathing and that is this beautiful anchor that can like kind of help you drop in. I always like riding the waves. If you drop an anchor from that boat, it's going to serve purpose. It's going to hold you in place. It's going to make sure that boat doesn't just take off in the ocean aim- aimlessly. Mm-hmm. And so our breath is one of those anchors. And what's so interesting also about an anchor is that when it's deep below the surface of the water, even if the water is a crazy tsunami, usually the below the surface of the water, it's pretty calm and still. And so it's, what are the things that get you to your calm, still place? There's mindfulness practice. There's your breath. There is all these resources, like your self-care things you can do. But mm-hmm. also like, I like grounding, fo- what I call grounding focal points. So breath being one of them. What are the constants that are part of your person that are always here with you? And so people who have a hard time noticing your breath can, I love just feeling, hands usually have generally 
really wonderful sensations can be felt on the nerves and the in on your mm -hmm. palms of your hands feeling the air that's on or around your fingers or even you know touching your thumb to each of the rest of your fingers um you know noticing you're taking a walk literally walking on the earth touching the ground mm -hmm. you know wiggling your toes like it's just like getting you into your body and and out of your mind and getting you out of your head and into something else away from the head so the yeah. hands is away from your head. Your toes are away from your head. So. Yeah, no, I love that. I actually, when I first started meditating, it drove me crazy when they would say, follow your breath. And I would immediately start trying to control it. And it drove me nuts. And for me, it's always been, to me, it's just when you recognize that something's going on, take a breath let it go really slow try to stimulate you know the vagus nerve try to just feel that calmness that comes with a long exhale and i prefer that to okay focus on your breath because <laughs> it yeah it drives me nuts yeah so i have some <laughs> i have some choice phrases that come up for me when people say that to me i'm like beep 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 <laughs> um I also like when you take more of an intentional, like deep breath, mm -hmm. you're shifting your, your physiological sense. And so it's always just nice to take a deep breath, to take a more dignified breath that you're like intentional about because you can really feel the air fill up your body and you can release whatever you want on your out breath, releasing that tension, that tightness, bringing in that cool, clean air. Mm. And also just noticing the, I find too, is like having the object of attention can also be noticing where you bring air in through the nose or mouth and then where you release air out, but also just noticing the belly rise on the in-breath and gently fall on the out-breath. It gives you kind of something to follow that entire breath cycle. And so it's not just aimless breathing. What am I doing? Like when mm -hmm. someone tells you to breathe, what are you really asking them? You know, I, I think for me, the reason why I've done the work I've done in the writing I've done is I've taken things that are, sometimes not so concrete or rather existential. And it's like, what are you really saying? What are you really asking someone to do? Mm. How does this really apply to our lives? How do we, people who are busy and doing and going, how do we bring this into our day? And from the morning we wake up till the minute we go to bed and make use of our time. We're awake. Why not use it to be present to our life instead of, you know, an autopilot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I really think, hmm, I adore Rick Hansen and his ideas, and I also adore the way that he um, is very real about how he puts things out. Sometimes he can get a little clinical, and I think that was one of the things that you really did well in Taking the Good, because you really make it all very approachable, and I don't know. Well, yeah, probably easier to understand, but really just um, easier to digest in small bites and understand, okay, I can take this right now and I can use this. And that's huge because for me, mindfulness is all about micro practices, especially in the beginning. You know, we're not all going to sit down and suddenly be able to meditate for an hour and a half a day. Um, I still rarely do. <laughs> But, you know, it's like all these little micro practices add up throughout the day. And the more often you do little things, 
the more powerful it is. Well, I always think this is an interesting way to look at it. So there's 24 hours in the day, and let's say you had eight hours of sleep, and then there's 16 hours of a waking day. So let's say you dedicated a half hour to formal mindfulness practice, to an actual practice. That's, there's still 15 and a half hours left in the waking day. So do I want to focus on that half hour, which is valuable, nonetheless, it is valuable, but I sure want to teach people how to focus all the rest of the day because yeah. there's 15 and a half hours left. And so my interest and attention has always been to how do I bring mindfulness to everything mm -hmm. and, and not just routine activities, but the things we enjoy in our life and the hobbies that are what we like turn to to support us and fill us up. Um, the book, Taking the Good, is a compilation of my whole career. Um, when I first started in BSRT for teens, I always had these ideas of how to visually share um, a technique or tool or intervention or skill, mindfulness practice, whatever you want to call it. But I am, I am far from an artist. Or <laughs> I do not. My art, artistic ability is pretty much limited to stick figures. And so I always had the images in my mind, and I'm very visual. And so when I met my artist, Brie, um, who is a teen and in college right now, which is pretty mm -hmm. awesome, and when I met her and she really got what I, what I would say, like, I'd be like, oh, I'd love to do this, and then she'd do it. Mm -hmm. And... And it was a pretty beautiful relationship that formed because of that. And I think that there's a lot of people that are visual too. And like really like to, it's something to see. It's like, oh, this really complicated thing. Oh, I can see it in this way. And this makes a whole lot more sense to me. Yeah. And so it's the compilation of my whole career and all the things like sometimes things are hard to say, but they're much easier to see. Yeah. And, um, and the book is not just for teens. The last things I've been writing, I think for the last five years, even if they're under like the adolescent publication, they're absolutely not just for teens. In fact, my whole program is completely appropriate for adults because it's just a more approachable time, time sensitive program. It's, mm -hmm. you know, most people aren't going to dedicate three hours to a mindfulness group if they're an adult. I'm not saying that they couldn't, they don't want to, yeah. but, but one and a half hours is a little bit more approachable. Well, and quite honestly, if we can get people to do micro practices, you know, throughout the day and be mindful throughout the day, that's more valuable in my mind to some extent. I mean, there is, like you said, a lot of value in, okay, you know, sitting meditation, sitting practice, that has its own value. But if we're mindful throughout the day, we're nicer to people, you know, we're just better humans. We're more present to ourselves too. Yes. One way I look at self-care is through levels, you know, and um, a lot of times people think that self-care has to be this large act or, or an mm -hmm. event, like a day event of taking off and doing, you know, X, Y, Z to be self engage in self-care. And I came up with these levels based on a lot of its time. And so level one self-care is what are, what are things you can do every day from one minute to 15 minutes that show you that you matter, that are self-care. Hmm. And, and it's like it, having a cup of tea, you know, um, picking a flower, petting your pet, you know, putting on perfume or cologne, um, putting on jewelry, you know, just sending a message to a friend, whatever it might be. It's like, okay, I'm showing myself I matter in all these little ways versus having to set aside an entire day to engage in self-care. And when you're engaging in those micro moments, just like micro moments of practice, mindfulness practice, you're you're 
you're filling yourself up with these coins. I call them the bank of well-being. You're putting mm -hmm. coins into your little piggy bank and, um, you know, you're, you're kind of creating a savings for yourself, like a, and I actually, I literally created this idea of the bank of well-being. It's like, what coins, what are the resources, what are the things you need to put in that you feel good and complete and, and whole? Mm -hmm. That's really valuable because there's going to be a time when you're going to need those resources. And I think that's something that, you know, um, a lot of the people that I know that have come to mindfulness have come out of being completely overwhelmed and they didn't know what to do next. And so they started casting around. And frankly, it's the way I came to it is just being in crisis and then going, okay, I got to figure out something to do with this. Gosh, if I would have known all of this all along, I might not have gotten to that crisis level. It, so, it's, unfor it's unfortunate that sometimes it takes us to be in a great deal of pain to get into action. Mm -hmm. And what I like about what I do and because I, and, and what I like about working with teens is that we get to plant these seeds a lot younger. Um, I surely wish I knew what I knew <laughs> when I was in high school or even younger. Um, absolutely. I wish I knew what a positive coping skill was. I wish I knew how, how to pay attention in a mindful practice. Cause I didn't even, we ask young people to do things that they're never taught. We ask them to pay attention. We ask them to engage in self-care. We, we ask them not to engage in negative self-harm or negative coping behaviors. And it's, or I, I, would, I would call them definitely not skills. They're definitely negative behaviors because that's mm -hmm. what they know. And it's like, well, what if we start planting these seeds earlier and earlier? But it's not too late either. If you're an adult right. and you're just getting into this, you know, it's, it's little by slow. Just take it one thing at a time and just start implementing it in different parts of your life that feel, feel doable so that you do feel some level of success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you are helping teens get going on this because the life skills are going to be amazing as these things build, you know, and, and um, yeah, I don't think I had anybody like you when I was a teen. <laughs> I think that's a compliment. So thank you. Yes, it is. <laughs> when, I, when I first started doing this, people, people thought I wasn't going, it wasn't going to work. People thought mm. there's no way this mindful stuff is going to work with teens. And some of the pretty well-known names in the mindful community thought I was a little out there for doing this. And, mm. and that made me want to do it even more <laughs> because, um, because that's in my, my personality and my nature. And, um, is so cool to see a teen kind of get it and like have these aha moments with something very simple. Like I had a, a magnet in my office for many years and it said, don't believe everything you think. And I can tell you many teens would come, almost every teen would come in and be like, Oh, I hadn't thought of that. And it's just, you get to see them like benefit from minimal effort. Really. It's like, they're really sponges for it and really wanting what you're teaching. They just need to learn how to learn it in a way that's accessible to them. Mm -hmm. well, and I totally get that because teens are searching. That's kind of in their nature is to be looking all the time. They're in this incredible learning mode of our lives is when we're the, that age. I mean, it doesn't end or anything, but it's much more intense. That's why we learn languages better when we're teenagers than when we're 40 or 
50. They're malleable. They're malleable. Yeah, they're brain malleable. changing. They are, are really can be very open to it. Mm -hmm. um, it just depends how you teach it. And I think it has a lot to do with um, a person, the adult having mindfulness in their own life because it, it creates a mindful relationship. When you're mind, when you bring mindfulness into your life, it changes the way you interact with yourself and with others. And that by itself is ha has an impact, even if you're not teaching it to anyone else. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you taking this time, Gina. It's been such a pleasure. And I really invite people to check out the cards, to check out your website, to check out the book. I'll be adding all the links in the blog post so that people can easily find them. And, uh, you know, I really want to thank you for taking this time and for your work because it's so important. Oh, it's such an honor and a privilege. I, I'm so grateful to be of service in this way. Um, it's definitely uh, not something I ever thought I would do. When I first started teaching this to teens, I never thought I would be here right now. Mm. Um, I never thought it'd be a movement and I would never know it would be so prevalent in so many different areas of young people's lives today. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And I hope that people really do work on bringing in the self-care piece too as well in their lives mm -hmm. and really that self-care is not being selfish and it's really no. it's necessary it's so. essential especially <laughs> now even more so now we have an opportunity that we don't ever have to say okay I'm just going to stay home I'm going to take care of myself I'm going to take care of my family and you know what for me we have a choice we can stay home be miserable about it or we can stay home and use it and it doesn't mean things aren't hard. It, it's also not being in denial. It's like there is life, but what can you do about it? What, how do you kind of, you know, make, make good of a very difficult situation if you can? Yeah. Just the yeah. way you want to look at it. It's like, I call it zooming in and out when you have like a, a lens of a camera. It's like, can, do you zoom in on just that one thing and you're stuck on it? Or mm -hmm. can you zoom back out and focus on the whole situation? It's like what sometimes one or the other serves you better. Sometimes we're stuck in just a little piece and we need to see the whole picture. And sometimes we're stuck on the whole picture and we need to mm -hmm. see something. It just depends where you're at with things and at that moment in life. Mm, I love that. You can always take mindful walk and take your camera and do mindful photography and zoom in and on out on things that gra grab your attention. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Thank you. Thanks, Janet. Appreciate it. Yeah, me too. I really enjoyed this. Hey, thanks for listening to Mindful Social. I hope you enjoyed the show and I would love to hear your feedback. Send me an email to Janet at JanetFouts.com or visit my blog at JanetFouts.com for more shows just like this one. Please don't forget to subscribe and share it with your friends.